0: This is The Ruminant, a podcast about food politics and food security, and the cultural and practical aspects of farming. You can find out more at theruminant.ca, email me, editor at theruminant.ca, and you can find me on Twitter, at Ruminant Blog, or search for The Ruminant on Facebook. All right, let's do a show. Hey everyone, it's Jordan. So I've got a short episode for you today, although it wasn't short to produce. The episode features a new segment we're trying out. More on that in a minute, but first I want to mention that I've got some good interviews cooking on the stove, I promise. But booking and conducting interviews in general is taking a lot longer in 2022 than when I started doing this show in 2012 or whenever it was. Back then, there were way fewer podcasts. Plus, we just went through a pandemic where it seemed like audio and video interview production exploded and in general, it seems like a lot of people are just overwhelmed with communications in their lives. So it's hard to get through to some of the people I contact with interview requests. And that's one reason why we're trying out a new segment on the show today. We're calling it Farm Sounds, and here's how it works. From time to time, I'd like to share a sound or two from the farm with you and use that sound as a starting point to share some thoughts, some ruminations, if you will, it's the Ruminant Podcast. about farming which is good for me because I like to write and don't do enough of it. Plus, this segment doesn't rely on me booking and conducting interviews, which is just so time-consuming. So here you go, the inaugural edition of Farm Sounds on the Ruminant Podcast. After that, we'll do a farmer questionnaire. This is the sound of me harvesting salad greens at around 5.30 on a Tuesday morning in late June. Baby greens have always represented the largest source of revenues in my mixed veggie operation in BC's Okanagan Valley. A healthy majority of those greens are grown for restaurants, although I also send bagged greens to a couple of retail outlets in the region, and plenty used to go direct to households before I wrapped up my CSA. On my farm, I seed two plantings of greens per week for around 24 weeks. For the peak 16 weeks, my salad mix features around 15 cultivars. Most of them are members of the Brassica family, but not entirely. I grow three different gem lettuces whose smaller inner leaves I cut and add to the mix, as well as a couple different chicories, and usually there's some baby chard or spinach to add as well. I'll tolerate some weeds in the mix as well, as long as they're edible, very young, and in small quantities. During July and August, I'll harvest up to 200 pounds of various baby greens per week. And I do it all myself, by hand. With a pair of scissors. That's what you're hearing in the sound layered under these words. Me, kneeling in a block of salad greens with a harvest bin and a pair of nine and a quarter inch tailor shears that turned out to be the holy grail in a long ago exhaustive search for the perfect pair of harvesting scissors. They can be got from Lee Valley in case anyone's interested, though you should know that I'm a big son of a bitch and some of my smaller body staff have eschewed them for their heaviness. As a bonus, they're Italian-made, which it took to be permission from the universe to irritate my employees by regularly turning my shears into a pair of lips that says, It's-a me, a scissors! That joke will come off as less xenophobic to listeners who've played a little Nintendo in their time. Anyway, I'm going to briefly play another sound for you. That's a quick cut greens harvester, which I mainly wanted to play in order to prove that I own one, so that the rest of this essay carries more legitimacy as I explain why I don't use it in favor of cutting 200 pounds of salad greens per week with Italian shears.
1: It's a me, Mario.
0: On technical terms, the farm on which I chose to learn how to grow veggies was a bad choice, though owing to my lack of experience, I was ill-equipped to recognize that. It was a beautiful farm on beautiful Vancouver Island, And the people were friendly and the food they served was delicious. But the farm, though commercial, wasn't very commercialized. There are lots of examples, but the best is probably that their approach to irrigation was the constant rotation of a couple of those lawn sprinklers that fan back and forth and are much less associated with watering a commercial broccoli crop than they are with children prancing through them on a hot Saturday. I didn't come away from that experience with a lot of knowledge about agritech. But the owner, Josie, taught me a lot about quality control. She sold to high-end restaurants in Victoria and had a reputation for beautiful produce. Josie's main crop? Baby salad greens, which we harvested by hand. And in this case, I mean by hand. The lettuces for the mix were standard varieties like oak leaf and Lola Rosa, which we transplanted out six inches apart. Once they had around six leaves, we'd come through on a harvest day and hand peel The two or three largest leaves, still baby-sized, off of each plant. Now, this was before advances like Salanova became available, but still, it was bonkers. I think Josie's point was that densely planted lettuce mixes produce limp leaves, and they do. And scissor blades caused oxidation on the bottom of the leaf, and that by peeling, we were allowing the inner leaves to size up for the next harvest, so bigger yields. It wasn't just the lettuce we did use scissors for some of the greens but i distinctly remember peeling individual leaves of baby peacock kale off their stalks and to be clear these weren't small harvests we had one hotel restaurant ordering 60 pounds at a pot and some weeks the total salad harvest was well over 100 pounds good thing josie's helpers came cheap as an apprentice i made room a converted animal stall plus board plus 50 dollars a week though granted i'm a big son of a bitch. So feeding the tubby guy sleeping in the pig stall couldn't have been cheap. Anyway, from that farm, I took away a strong emphasis on quality as a path to farming success and the intention to make baby salad greens a focus when I started my own farm business. Which brings us back to the present and my choice to use a $40 pair of Italian shears instead of a $900 greens harvester. Woohoo! It didn't take me long to abandon the idea of peeling individual lettuce leaves, which did result in superior quality, but was just too slow. The emergence of new cultivars like the Salanova collection and its imitators helped a ton since they allowed you to produce a full head of baby-sized leaves, although I ended up switching to jam lettuces for reasons I won't explain here. I'll skip past the first quick-cut harvester I bought, which featured a double-blade design that had a few ongoing problems. I soon replaced it by a far superior single-blade model. That's the one you heard in operation a minute ago. I bought the harvester for the same reason everyone else did. The promise of greatly increasing my harvest efficiency was super appealing to me. And the marketing for it was slick. For a while, I used it regularly. And what I can say in its favor is that when conditions are perfect, that tool pushes tin. Which will not mean anything to you if you haven't seen the movie Pushing Tin, starring John Cusack and Billy Bob Thornton which was made back when studios would release mainstream movies about two air traffic controllers who get into fights at barbecues. I say the guy's a loose cannon. Takes one no one, Nicky. He brings it in steep and tight. Hey, he pushes 10, hey, he pushes 10. Anyway, the tool works well in perfect conditions, meaning it works great when the bed you're cutting is relatively dry and weed free, and the crop is standing straight up and of a uniform height. In those conditions, one can dramatically increase their harvest efficiency while maintaining control over the quality of the cut. But conditions on the farm are seldom perfect. Where I live, we experience really hot, really dry summers that require frequent, sometimes daily irrigation. For conservation purposes, I water overnight and almost always wake up to wet greens on harvest day. To wait for dry conditions would line up with temperatures too hot to harvest greens in. Those greens are covered by insect netting, since I don't use any pesticides, and the flea beetles here mean business. Insect netting that, when I pull it off wet beds of greens, tends to knock the greens over, which makes it way harder for the quick-cut harvester to deliver an even cut. Add to this the realities of weed pressure and beds of mustard or mizuna or arugula that don't always grow uniformly, and the ultra-fast, scorched-earth approach of the quick-cut harvester translates to a drop in quality. Weeds end up in the mix that are too mature for inclusion, or greens get in there with either too much stem or half their leaf missing. My abandoning of the quick cut happened gradually. I would lug it out for each harvest and start out with it, knowing how much faster it would make the salad harvest. But almost without fail, I'd end up abandoning it after a few minutes because I couldn't stomach the compromising quality I was trading for speed. Suddenly it would be three hours later, the harvest would be done, and I'd have to get up on my deck to look out over the farm to see where I'd left the quick cut. And also, well, listen to the quick cut and then the scissors played one after the other. My farm is located in the context of a busy community farm. On most days, by 9 a.m., there are two tractors running full-time and 20 to 40 volunteers bustling around the farm. At 5 in the morning, though, it's just me and the birds out there. What sound would you rather hear? Maybe that sounds quaint, or maybe if you're a fellow commercial farmer, you're rolling your eyes right now. But for me, when I consider making investments to gain efficiency, and listen, I am always considering investments to gain efficiency, I think one has to weigh the trade-offs involved because there are always trade-offs. If you don't believe that, I've got an uber-efficient, uber-destructive industrial farm model I'd like to show you. In the case of the quick cut, I had to weigh a gain in harvest efficiency of two to four times against the drop in quality of my mix I'd have to accept and the decrease in enjoyment of harvest compared to hand cutting. And in that case, I decided it wasn't worth it. So the harvester now hangs pretty much full time from the wall of my tool trailer, except for once a year when I pull it down to cut the tops off of my fava beans, which it's really, really good at. Oh, and one more thing I wanna say. I am very, very fast at hand cutting greens with my Italian shears. I've cut thousands of pounds of greens with them and I don't fool around. So I guess there's also a pride that I take in harvesting that way. Before I say goodbye, let me bring up the sound of the harvest again so I can better explain what you're hearing. harvest on my knees, bin to my left, scissors in my right hand. I make between six and eight cuts between each drop of greens into my bin, gathering each cut into my left palm with my middle finger as I go. You can hear that in this recording, the series of scissor cuts as I gather a large handful and then the sound of me dropping it into the bin. In good conditions, I can harvest 75 pounds an hour this way. I don't always have good conditions, but it doesn't matter if we place efficiency as a goal above all else, all the time, most of us will end up with a farm that looks and operates very little like the one we had in our mind's eye when we were first inspired to do this work. And for me, there's a sadness to that prospect. So I'm going to keep hand cutting and listening to the bird song. And now for some salt to put in your soup. It's the Farmer Questionnaire. Who are you and where do you farm?
1: Yeah, so my name is Katherine Kirshner and I farm in Big Timber, Montana, which is um, southeast, kind of by Yellowstone and so it's beautiful here uh, snows like a lot and it gets really cold but it's really dry the name of the the grass-fed uh, business is uncommon beef and so it's a grass fed and grass finished beef label and we lease our property um, we, we've kind of moved different properties a couple times but all in this general area and it's past the animals are always on pasture and we do rotational grazing to try to keep them healthy and to contribute to the land instead of take from it and yeah we think it's pretty good tasty beef and we market through social media our farm newsletter our email list and then through we get our like name and brand out there by farmers markets mainly there's three ones that we attend pretty consistently that are all you know within an hour of us um and that's yeah i mean initially when we we got into we bought our herd but we didn't have you know beef yet we did bone broth and that kind of started getting some traction and people started knowing us for that um and we were sourcing the the bones from a local organic farm um ranch and then we started having our own beef product um, in inventory, and so now we pretty much just just do that. At this point, we're running like 10 head. Um, we're, we grow seasonally and then reduce through the winter because we are in a drought that's so newer. So in 2020, um, hay prices were like $120 a ton, and then the following year they were like $300 a ton. Um, and so a lot of the, the head of the, the herds in Montana, they left, um, because no one could feed them over winter. And so we did the same. We liquidated our breeding stock. And so now we're bringing on yearlings during the growing season. And if, um, you know, the hope is to finish them out and direct market them, um, that way we can not have to have so many hay input costs during the winter
0: what's one of your favorite breeds or cultivars
1: oh yeah so the breed i'm super passionate about is the galloway um beast cattle breed it's sort of a heritage breed i mean i didn't really think of it as that way but technically it is um it's this awesome like shaggy animal so it kind of looks like the Highland, a Highlander breed, but it doesn't have the horns. They're naturally cold. and they're great for our climate. They do really well on grass. Um, and because of their thick hide, which is like um, second only to like the thickness of buffalo hide, it keeps them warm and they require less groceries to keep you know their, maintain their performance through winter. They're super docile, which is important to us because it's a small family operation and we have uh, small kids and I don't work the, or I guess I, rather, I do work my cattle on foot. Like I don't do horse or four wheeler so much. And so they have to be docile. We won't keep anything that's not.
0: Describe a common misconception about food production or what you do as a farmer or anything commonly believed about farming gardening that you think is a myth.
1: Yeah, so I mean, the common one that like we deal with a lot in terms of marketing our, our product is that people think that grass-fed beef should be cheaper than grain-finished beef, which can be frustrating, um, but understandable. Um, Most people don't understand the, you know, greater landscape of our food supply and how corn and soy is so subsidized, and so our meat costs are artificially kept cheap. Um, And then they're like, you know, grass is free, right? Which is also a misconception in the sense that, like, if we just, Degrade the land by overgrazing and not growing, you know, healthy, biodiverse, like beautiful pastures. Then, then where we're going to be? There's no growing grass. I mean, it's not free. It basically is the, simple, the short of it, right? And so we have a lot of input costs in terms of water development for our cattle, so we can move them like we want to, and also you know, pasture, um, feed, diverse. We put diverse perennial grass seeds out and, um, and hay, you know? And so it takes longer to finish an animal properly on grass instead of feeding them grain and and getting there faster. So yeah, that's a common misconception we deal with.
0: What's one skill set or knowledge set that you lack in your farming that you wish you had or that has vexed or befuddled you?
1: Really, when I think of this question, the first thing that comes to mind is irrigation. Like, water is like magical and um, the things you can do with it and how important it is and when you can't get it where you need it it's just like the number one limiting factor to management like intensive grazing the way we do.
0: How do you maintain balance in your life?
1: <laughs> Not very well. If You can hear the uh, small children in the background. Um, but I mean we try. So my husband is wonderful and um, so the The grass finished beef business is mine. He is a teacher and that's his um, passion is education. And so I have his support with the kids and work-life balance. And he really supported me in my decision to pursue agriculture in the first place because it's not my background growing up. And I was in education for 10 years too before I decided to follow a calling into ag. And so balancing the kids is like full-time. We have a, a two-year-old, a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, and so they're still pretty young and not super handy for, you know, safety's sake yet. Um, but, I mean, it's great. Last night the cows got out and we leased pasture, so I threw all the kids in the car before bedtime. We drove out and I put the cows back in and we came home and went to bed. So, you know, it's fun. It's a good way to grow up, I think.
0: How would you think your farm will look different in 10 years?
1: Hopefully, um, we our, our goal is to increase like the biodiversity and the biomass as we you know manage the land well and we we invest in seed um, as we feel is appropriate. I mean, I do believe in like a latent seed bank that is just present on the land and that we can actually wake it up with biology, but I also think that maybe we can get there faster if we put out um, native species that were there before. So we've intentionally focused on soil health and we're working fully on developing more water points so we can protect the, the stream that runs through the property. And um, what's the other big important thing? Oh, so we also plan to um, stack enterprises. So next year we're, think, we're planning on bringing on Katahdin and hair sheep. And the following year, we want to bring on pasture poultry and kind of managing them all in this like ecosystem where they're all giving back to the land and producing really healthy meat for our family and our community.
0: (laughs) That's all, everybody. I will talk to you next time.
2: trying to give me the screw but if we bury ourselves in the woods in the country wear no clothes so we never have laundry we'll owe nothing to this world of thieves live life like it was meant to be our oh, don't fret honey I've got a plan to make our final escape all oh, we'll need A $100, and maybe a roll of duct tape, and we'll run right outside of the city's reaches. We'll live off chestnuts, spring water, and peaches. We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves, and live life like it was meant to be. Why would we live in a place that don't want us A place that is trying to bleed us dry We could be happy with life in the country With salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands I've been doing a lot of thinking Some real soul searching And here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house Or some fancy car To keep my love going strong So we'll run right out Into the wilds and graces We'll keep close quarters With gentle faces And live next door To the birds and the bees And live life like it was meant to be